Paul is concerned that he might become disqualified as he runs this race. You think he's talking to the Corinthians. He said, I'm even worried about myself. And now in chapter 10, Paul draws a parallel with the race, the Christian life, with the Israelites' journey out of Egypt, ultimately into the promised land. And that journey too, the Christian life, is a difficult race. All the Israelites on their journey, they were in the race. But almost all of them were disqualified. God disciplined them there in the wilderness. And it's with that in mind that we turn our attention to verse 1. I'll read down through verse 13 of this chapter. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I think what this text has for us is actually uh, multiple facts that are are quite surprising. They're they're contrary to what we would expect, and they are very, very important. So this morning, we want to look together at three surprising facts from this text. Here's the first fact that I think might surprise you, and that may have caught the Corinthians off guard. You can experience God's privileges without God's pleasure. You can experience God's blessings and privileges and him, Him not be pleased with you. You might think that if you're experiencing spiritual blessing and privileges in your life, that God must be happy. He must be pleased with you. If good things are happening, that, that, well, that would probably seem to indicate that, well, things must be going pretty good between me and God. That's how we tend to think. But that's not necessarily true. You can actually experience God's privileges. And maybe one way I could uh, define those, those privileges is as God's covenant blessings. The blessings of salvation. You can experience God's privileges or covenant blessings without having God's pleasure. The one does not not necessarily necessitate the other. And God illustrates this for us through our spiritual ancestors, our spiritual parents, the children of Israel. And their story is a reminder that you can actually experience enormous amounts of privilege and blessing from God. Enormous, enormous amounts. In verses 1 to 4, uh, Paul lays out five spiritual privileges that Israel experienced. And I think as we look at these, you'll find that they actually very closely parallel our own experience as well as what would have been going on in Corinth. 
you might be experiencing the first privilege that he mentions, which is the experience of God's presence, protection, and guidance in your life. Uh, Look at verse 1 there. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. All of them. And he's going to, in each one of these phrases, he's going to keep highlighting the fact that it was all of them. All of them. All of them. All of them. All of our fathers were under the cloud. What was their experience? Well, you remember that when the Israelites left Egypt and all throughout their wilderness wanderings, God led and guided them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Exodus 13, 20 to 21 records for us that God was in that cloud. His presence was there. And you may recall even uh, when God would inhabit the tabernacle or the temple, ultimate, or the tabernacle in the wilderness, that that cloud came and rested over that place. It was God's presence. He was in that cloud. And, and so through the cloud, the pillar, the Israelites experienced God's constant 24-7 presence in their life. They experienced his protection. You remember how the cloud then moved as they crossed the Red Sea between them and Pharaoh's army? And guidance, it led them through the wilderness. And if you're a Christian, you really have that same experience, do you not? God's not dwelling in a cloud. It's a whole lot better than that, actually. You are God's temple. God is dwelling in you. And you've experienced his guidance and protection and leading in your life. What an enormous, enormous privilege that is. Privilege number two is the experience of God's miraculous deliverance and salvation. Verse one continues again with the same word, all. All pass through the sea. What was their experience? Well, God miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea. Pharaoh was closing in on them and they were trapped. And God in his glory opened the sea up and they walked through on dry ground. And as that happened, God's glory stood between them and the forces of evil. They had been redeemed from Egypt and they had been delivered from their bondage. And if you're a Christian, you've experienced something similar. God miraculously saved you. That was a miracle of God. And he delivered you. He redeemed you from your sin and your slavery and your bondage. And you've been set free. And what we should say is, wow, what an enormous privilege that I'm so prone to just take for granted, but this is amazing. Privilege number three is the experience of union with a spiritual head. Look at verse two. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Uh, Through the Red Sea experience and the cloud and all that was going on there, the text says that they were baptized into Moses. It's a bit of a unique expression that maybe catches us off guard a little bit, but the the baptism idea is probably drawing attention to the fact that there was a union that occurred. Exodus 14.31 says that after they saw what God had done, they believed in the Lord. And then it says this, and in his servant Moses. They were united with their human deliverer and they had become a new people. If you're a Christian, you have been united with Christ, your spiritual deliverer and head, the second Adam. And that union has been testified to by so many of you through baptism. You've identified yourself with Christ and recognized that through your union with him, uh, a death has occurred and a life has occurred, a resurrection has occurred and that you are a new person. You, 
It's through your union with Christ that you have been redeemed. And now what is there? There's a new covenant people. The church, which you are a part of. You sit here this morning in the midst of God's people and you go through your Christian journey with them. What an enormous, enormous privilege. Privilege number four is the experience of spiritual food. Look at verse three. And all, again, highlighting the fact it's all of them. All ate the same spiritual food. That's no doubt a reference to the manna and quail that God provided for his people. For 40 years, every meal that the Israelites ate miraculously fell from heaven. God supernaturally gave food to them. I think that's the idea of spiritually there. It's been provided supernaturally by God as a gift from heaven. Uh, On the one hand, we could, borrowing the word there in the text, we could say that that food was a spiritual gift from God. What a privilege. And along similar lines, privilege number five is the experience of spiritual drink. Look at verse four. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. There's no water in the wilderness. And two times, one at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, and one at the end, nearly 40 years later, God miraculously provided water for them from a rock. And Paul is quick to highlight that for all 40 of those years, Christ, their rock, which is a title uh, repeatedly used in, in, in the first few books of the Bible to describe God, their rock. He's quick to highlight that, that Christ, their rock, was with them providing water every single day of that journey. He was always there meeting that need. It was a gift from God. Every single day, the Israelites experienced a miracle. Every single day. And the food that they ate and the water that they drank, it had all been miraculously provided for them by God. What a privileged people. How did these last two privileges of spiritual food and drink parallel our own experience? Well, uh, many think that since baptism has just been mentioned in the previous verse and in the passages to follow, he's going to talk about the Lord's Supper. Many people think that that's what this is about and what Paul had in mind. Perhaps the Corinthians felt overconfident in their standing with God because of their use of the ordinances. We've been baptized. We're new and we partake of the Lord's Supper and we're good. We have all these spiritual gifts and we're doing just fine. That may be what's going on. But I wonder if Paul maybe has another parallel in mind. The manna and water were miraculous, supernatural, and to to use the specific wording of this text, spiritual gifts provided by God to his people for them to use and enjoy. And I wonder without fleshing it out in great detail, if Paul is highlighting the spiritual gifts that God had given the Corinthians as well. The Corinthians were fat, we might say, with spiritual giftedness. And and Paul said as much in chapter 1 of the book, uh, God had enriched them in all speech and all knowledge. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. The Corinthian church was endowed greatly with spiritual gifts. Paul says, I basically, I don't know of a church like you that has so many spiritual gifts. And it would appear that that became a source of pride for the Corinthians. But while that was the case, I would imagine that God greatly used the Corinthians in their gifts. That God had given those gifts. And he wanted them to be used. And as the Corinthians exercised those gifts, I would imagine that God used them. 
And that the, perhaps the Corinthians saw a lot of good things happening in their church as they exercised their spiritual gifts and God worked through those things. You know, God has given you spiritual gifts and he might even be greatly using you in his service as you use those gifts that the Spirit of God has given you. What an enormous privilege. But you might find yourself thinking, look at how I'm ministering and look at how I'm serving and I'm doing this and I'm doing that and it's like whatever my hand touches, it's like gold. I'm like the spiritual gift wonder boy. I do this and I do that and wow, look at how God is using me. God must be pretty pleased with me. And I think this passage would warn you to be careful what conclusions you draw from that. Was Israel a spiritually privileged people? Are we a spiritually privileged church? Are you a spiritually privileged person? There's only one answer to that question that could possibly write. And the answer is yes, if you're a Christian. But look at verse 5. And all I want you to do is notice the first word. Verse 5 begins, nevertheless. All that blessing, all that privilege, nevertheless, what? With most of them, God was not pleased. You can't conclude that even if God is blessing you and you have all these spiritual privileges in your life, you can't conclude that God is pleased with you. We tend to interpret God's blessings as his pleasure with us, This text makes clear that you can experience God's privileges without his pleasure. How do we know that God wasn't pleased with most of the Israelites? Well, verse 5 goes on to say, For they were overthrown in the wilderness. What did God do over the course of 40 years? He scattered their bodies all over the desert. Everywhere. And in a moment, we'll see several examples of that. On one occasion in particular that, particular that we will look at, uh, God's people got up in the morning and they swallowed manna that God had miraculously provided for breakfast. And then that evening, the ground swallowed them up for dinner. All in the same day. Experience a miracle and the ground consuming them in God's wrath. You can experience God's privileges without his pleasure. Now, verses 1 to 4 said, all of them, all of them, all of them, all of them. But verse 5 says, with most of them, God was not pleased. Uh, as people try to guess how many, how many Israelites were going through the wilderness, it's conservatively estimated that there would have been at least 2 million of them. Most likely more. And yet, how many of those 2 million people made it to Canaan? Two. They all fell. Of the adults, Joshua and Caleb were the only two to win the prize, to run the race in such a way as not to be disqualified. Moses didn't even make it. Moses. We should probably ask, well, what was the spiritual condition of the Israelites? Many of them, to use our uh, New Testament language, they were saved. I mean, look at Moses. Would anyone question Moses' salvation? I don't think so. And others of them were not saved. It was a spiritually mixed group. And so this warning seems to be coming to us in such a way that on the one hand, it's a reminder that spiritual experiences don't make you a Christian at all. Just because you're attached to a church and you're doing religious things, that doesn't make you a Christian. And on the other hand, though a Christian stands objectively in the grace of God and cannot lose his salvation, it is possible for a true believer to experience God's intense correction and discipline, and even to miss out on God's best. 
Just ask Moses. Your relationship with Christ is a guarantee, but your fellowship is not. And Jude one twenty one, we, we have this interesting statement where Jude one twenty one advises you to keep yourself in the love of God. Make sure you're walking in fellowship with him. You're not, you can't lose your salvation. You're secure in Christ and that standing is secure. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean you'll go through your earthly journey in fellowship with him. It's much like the relationship of a father and a son. Though your relationship with as God's child is eternal and unchanging and there's nothing that can alter that. Sin hurts your fellowship with God. The same would be true of any parent with their child. Nothing's going to change the status of that relationship or, or, or cause it to cease to exist. But fellowship can be harmed. Recently, Christianity Today released a podcast chronicling the journey of a very well-known megachurch and its charismatic pastor. And that church uh, went from, I don't know, maybe a normal-sized church that we would think of, the, maybe an average church size, and it, it rose overnight to, to great prominence. It became enormous with thousands of people, multiple campuses. And then that church, almost in a moment, crumbled and completely fell apart. And in the podcast, as people tell their stories of what happened, you have this weird, uncomfortable tension of what was going on. Because on the one hand, it seemed like God worked so powerfully there. Individuals who were in that, that church were recounting stories. And perhaps a Sunday where dozens, if not hundreds of people were baptized on a single Sunday. These people coming to Christ and, and, and being baptized and testifying to that faith in him. And on the one hand, it's not like, well, yeah, well, look at, just dismiss it all. No, those people are saying this happened. And it seemed authentic and it seemed real and a powerful, awesome, incredible work of God in mass. And then on the other hand, people telling stories about the spiritual decay and rot in that church and the leadership. The leadership was extremely proud and ungodly. The place was a mess. The church seemed to be experiencing so many of God's blessings and then literally almost in a moment, it was done. God had completely shut it down. I think that we need to remember that you can experience God's privileges. We as a church can experience God's, God's privileges and God not be pleased with us. And so what does Paul say? He says, don't be ignorant of that. That's how he starts off. Don't make wrong conclusions. Is God pleased with you and how you're running the race? God, what he wants you to do is take a careful look. How's this really going? This externals aside, is God pleased? with the way that I am running this race. Also, I think we're wise not to become enamored with the success of men and their giftedness or the results that may come. Don't become enamored with yourself. Don't assume that God's blessings are tied to a person. Our first surprising fact is that you can experience God's privileges without God's pleasure and the second surprising fact is that you can experience God's displeasure within God's covenant. Christians quickly take God's grace in which they stand for granted. I'm a Christian. Grace quickly turns into license to sin. 
And we become comfortable with God and we lose our, our reverence and our awe for who he is. And we forget that God has a holy hatred of sin. He absolutely hates it and he detests it. God does not have a track record of tolerating sin in the life of his kids. Look for it all over scripture and you won't find it. Long-suffering? Yes, absolutely. Tolerant? No. I love my kids. And I, I think what I, well, one of the things I would hope as a parent, as I'm sure so many of you would, is I would hope that my kids know and can feel and sense uh, that my wife and I love them without reserve. And we would hope that they'd feel totally secure in that love and never question it and feel totally secure in our home and find it to be a safe and wonderful place where they are loved and cherished no matter what. And it doesn't matter how they sin or how they might sin in the future or what they might do to hurt me or anybody else. I will always love them because they are my kids. And nothing's ever going to change that. But my children would be absolutely foolish to presume that because of my love that I wouldn't correct them and actually even do that firmly. They would be foolish to presume that I would tolerate certain actions, attitudes, and behaviors. I will not. Because I love them. And I think as we look at our Heavenly Father and we would draw on that analogy of an earthly father, it's really not much different. You are secure in your Father's love. That is not something that you have to worry about or question. Does God like me? Does he love me? Or does God just... No, that, 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 that question doesn't even need to be there. Absolutely God loves you. Look at what he did for you. You're secure in his love, but he will not tolerate your sin. And so the warning is, do not presume upon his grace. And this is, this is a warning passage. It draws our attention to an aspect of God that may be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's there in Scripture. You can experience God's displeasure within God's covenant, within God's family, as a Christian. Verses 6 to 11 provide four examples of this from Israel's history. They, uh, these verses, you might think of them as a sandwich. Verses 6, to 11, 6 and 11, they're kind of like the, the bread on either end. And the verses between are like the meat in the middle. So maybe we can just start on the outside and work our way in. Uh, let's read verse 6 and then we'll read verse, skip down to verse 11. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then verse 11 says something very similar. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. According to these verses, God is giving us, we might say the church, those on whom the end or the goal or the culmination of the ages has come. He's giving us examples from Israel's history for two primary reasons. What are they? Well, in verse 6, he said, so that we might not desire evil as they did. And in verse 11, the second reason that we might learn and be instructed, and, and, and that word could actually be translated warned. God wants us to learn and be instructed and be warned from Israel's example. And he's going to give uh, multiple examples that are meant to instruct us. Instructive example number one is the sin of idolatry or deviant worship. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to, to eat and drink and they rose up to play. 
The incident uh, recorded took place in Exodus chapter 32. It was the golden calf incident. And as Moses was up on the mountain, remember, fellowshipping with God and receiving the Ten Commandments and all of that, the people asked Aaron to make them a God. It's like they've just been delivered from Egyptian bondage. They've just passed through the Red Sea. Hey, Aaron, could you make us a God? And he made the golden calf. And then they worshipped that calf in connection, the text says, with a feast to the Lord. You've got this nasty, disgusting mix in God's eyes of worshiping the golden calf and him all together. We would call that syncretism. And then they sang and they danced and they played. Uh, and that play was most likely erotic in nature. And how does God respond? Well, he sent a plague on the people in verse 35 of that chapter. But Exodus 32 verse 28 says this, That day about 3,000 men of the people fell. They fell. And maybe you could just take that word and tuck it in your mind for a moment. They fell. And what was meant by that? They died. God killed 3,000 people. You can experience God's displeasure within God's covenant. Instructive example number two is the sin of sexual immorality. Look at verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000, note the next word, fell in a single day. Uh, Verse 8 takes us back to the book of Numbers, chapter 25, 40 years into the wilderness wanderings. And verses 1 to 2 of that text say that the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And these invited people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. Two things going on there, sexual morality and idol worship. How did God respond? Well, he told Moses, I want you to go hang a bunch of these people in the sun before the Lord. And then he had the judges of Israel kill those involved. And then he sent a plague that killed people by the thousands. And the plague would have continued to kill and kill and kill people. But something happened that made it stop. Uh, In the front of all of Israel, an Israelite man took a Midianite woman into his tent. And as they were in the act, a man by the name of Phineas ran into the tent and drove his spear through both of them simultaneously. And the plague stopped. And the text says it stopped because God said that Phineas turned back God's wrath. God does not have a track record of tolerating sin. And by the time that incident was over, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 8 tells us that 23,000, what is our word? They fell. They died. You can experience God's displeasure within God's covenant. Before we move on to the next example, let me remind you of what was happening in Corinth. Uh, some of the Corinthians back, back in chapter 8, if you can remember back to that point, they were arguing that it was their Christian liberty or right to go with their friends or family members or whoever else into uh, an idol's temple and eat food there. They were arguing that they had that liberty or freedom to eat meat offered to idols in an idol's temple, which was also, as we know from what was going on in Corinth, often a place of rampant sexual immorality. It would seem that Paul has very carefully chosen these first two examples to parallel what was going on in Corinth. These first two examples are strikingly similar. They both involve idol worship and sexual sin. Paul is arguing, don't be so foolish as to think that you can go into an idol's temple, really, And walk out okay, even if the food itself is morally neutral. 
Don't be that foolish. The point, the exercise of certain Christian liberties could put you in a very dangerous and vulnerable situation. And in such instances, Paul says, stay clear. You may have this liberty, but if that liberty takes place in a context uh, like what was going on in Corinth, which I think can be somewhat hard and tricky to define, you better be careful. And maybe you just need to stay away completely. Paul takes us to a third instructive example, which is a sin of testing Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Uh, That verse takes us to Numbers chapter 21. As the Israelites journeyed, they needed to go through a place called Edom. And you may recall what happened with Edom. They wanted to pass right through the land of Edom. And the Edomites said, no, we don't want you coming through here. That's a massive group of people. No thanks. Find another way. And so that's what the Israelites had to do. And remember, they're on foot. Instead of walking straight through town, they've got to find an alternative route around Edom. Um, What happened at that point? Well, verses 4 to 5 of the Old Testament text say that the people became, became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. What was going on really was that they were questioning God's plan and God's purpose for their lives and for their journey. They didn't like it, and they were dissatisfied with the rigors and the hardships of God's chosen way for them. God says, I've got a path for you, and it's difficult. We don't like that. We don't want that. God, we're not cool with that. Why would you do this to us, God? Why would we have to go this route? How many of us have committed that sin recently? God, I don't like this. This is too hard. Why do we have to deal with this? Why do we have to deal with that? Well, maybe it came to us from God. How did God respond to that instance? Well, he sent fiery serpents that bit and killed the people. And you recall from that story that the the dying doesn't stop until God provides a crafted serpent on a pole for the people to look up to in faith. And again, it's just this reminder, these people, they're God's people. They're God's covenant people. And they're experiencing God's displeasure within God's covenant. Fourth instructive example is a sin of grumbling. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Israel complained so many times in the wilderness, right? This just keeps happening. I think something like seven times it's recorded for us. It's likely that verse 10, though, takes us back to number 16 and Korah's rebellion. Uh, Korah and 250 leaders stood up and rebelliously challenged Moses' authority. Made a bunch of accusations about him. Basically, we can do it better than you. You've got to, we don't like what you're doing. And sooner or later, the whole nation is grumbling and complaining as people rejected the faithful leadership that God had given them and planned for them. How does God respond? Well, he opened the ground and he swallowed those 250 men. And remember, they had probably just had manna that very day. Experienced a a miracle that very day and then were consumed by the ground. Those men were swallowed up in their families and their possessions. And God sent out fire and consumed people. He sent a plague that killed thousands of people. You can experience God's displeasure within God's covenant. God does not have a track record of tolerating sin even among his kids. So what do we do? Well, I, I think... A simple application is as we look at this list of sins, idolatry, which can take on so many forms in our own culture, 
immorality, again, which can take on so many forms, so many perversions of God's plan, testing Christ, grumbling. All of these things are gross in God's eyes. And I think we should all look and go, man, are any of those things in my life? And I just think it's no big deal. It's a huge deal. God wants you to repent of that. But everything that Paul has said thus far has really been leading to one big point of application. And it comes in verse 12. Therefore, here's the summary of all of this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think that you stand before God and you're taking his grace for granted, take heed, watch out, you could fall. And many of the Corinthians arrogantly probably did that very thing. They're taking God's grace for granted. They're taking their standing in Christ for granted. And the warning comes. But I want to ask you a question. In this passage, what does it mean to fall? I think we often interpret this verse way too narrowly. We go, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. If you're overconfident that you're doing well as a Christian, well, you better be careful lest you fall into sin. And we stop there. The Israelites fell in more than one sense that's recorded in this passage for us. They did fall into sin. And with that sin, they fell into God's displeasure. God was not pleased with them. But they also fell in another sense. If you just look back up through the text so far, have we seen the word fall? You look back up through that text and you're going to find it there in verse 8, I believe it is. 23,000 did what? They fell. They fell into sin. They fell into God's pleasure. And they ultimately fell into their graves, many of them prematurely. He goes, is this some kind of death threat from God to his people? It's a warning passage. If you don't run the race well, God could literally take you out of it. Would he go that far? Well, we're going to get further on in the book of Corinthians where God's talking about the the Lord's Supper. And he's going to say, there's some of you who are asleep right now. You've died because you flippantly approached the Lord's table. Would God go that far? Yes. Look at Corinth. Look at Israel. Would he do that even with the believer? Yes. Would he go that far? He might. He does not have a track record of tolerating sin. Wow. This is heavy stuff. The first two facts that we've considered have both been heavy, heavy, heavy warnings. As we turn our attention to a third fact, warning now gives way to assurance. Third surprising fact, you can experience God's faithfulness and human weakness. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it right at the heart of this verse is an incredible declaration that god is faithful and in fact it's it's that theme it's that aspect of god's character that is uh intensely tied to the old testament covenant and to the covenant God. It's his faithfulness. Often interpreted as, as his steadfast love or loving kindness in, in our Bibles. 
It's God's covenant loyalty or his faithfulness to the covenant and to his people. God was faithful in the old covenant and he's faithful in the new covenant as well. And, and as we step back, we might get the idea, wow, what, God is, is God just waiting to give me a massive, big, giant spanking when I mess up? Is that God's heart? No. God wants you to run the race well. God wants you to win. He doesn't want you to stumble and fall along the way. He's given you everything you need to run the race and run it well. How so? Well, a few things from this verse. God doesn't allow any unique temptations. Uh, Look at verse 13 again, the first part of it. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. On your journey, you're not going to face any temptations that are somehow unique to you in your own little experience and own little private world. Any temptation you face is going to be something that's humanly common. Whatever it is that you're going through right now, it's not unique to you or God's people throughout the ages. Also, God limits the temptation actually to your ability, he says. Look at verse 13. After he says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You will never face a temptation that's irresistible. It's that simple. That will never happen. Don't tell yourself otherwise. It's simply not true. And further, God always provides a way out. In verse 13, says, But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God always provides a way of escape. And in fact, what this verse says is that every temptation, it comes... They come as pairs of sorts. Maybe God allows a temptation into your life, and as he allows it, simultaneously with that temptation comes a way of escape. The temptation never just comes by itself. It comes paired with a way out. Every single one. And God's there to help you take it. You can experience God's faithfulness and human weakness. I think we all sit here and go, wow, we are great, great sinners. And praise God, we're secure in Christ that our our objective standing in Christ is solid and unshakable. Nothing can change that. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But I want to run the race well. I want to dwell in God's fellowship. And I think you do too. And you go, well, inside of me is my flesh and and, and these external pressures of the world and, and the devil. And it's hard. And we all feel that. But you know what, if, if in your heart you're saying, God, I want to run this race and I want to do it well, will you give me that grace? Will you give me that help? What has God said? I'm faithful. And on the flip side of that, if you're taking God's grace for granted and you really don't care how you run this race, take heed, lest you fall. God's not going to be mocked. God does not have a track record of tolerating sin. So what does God want you to do? Take seriously the fact that you could fall into sin. And then he wants you to lean hard on his faithfulness. God, I can't do this journey without you. Give me your grace. Prove yourself faithful. Help me to lean on you. God, help me. Take heed lest you fall. Would you bow your head with me at this time?